Poetry night rings through. On Monday, January 21st, we said... The Accommodation, Adam's Recollection. Adam said to Eve, Something is happening to me that, that I do not understand. Eve said, Tell me about it. Adam said, I cannot tell you about it. Understand it. Tell me how it feels. I'll try, said Adam. Remember how it felt when we were in the garden, when everything was provided, ready to our hand? There was nothing we could want. The garden again, said Eve. I thought we had put that behind us. Adam said, oh, we have. I only bring it up to talk about the feeling of having everything I wanted, and only one thing I could do could screw things up. Eve looked at Adam. Shaggy, bearded, and matted hair, his red-rimmed eyes, she knew he hadn't been sleeping very well. Times in the night, she would waken and know by his breathing, his occasional sigh, that he was lying there awake. But neither of them would speak, and eventually she'd drift back into her own fitful sleep. She asked, This feeling that you have now, is it like the garden? No, said Adam. It's the opposite of that. It is the feeling of longing for something so much that everything else means nothing until I have the thing. I get filthy and bathe in a clear, cool pool, and mud and dust come off me, but I don't feel clean. I thirst, and we find a little stream, and I drink, and my thirst is quenched, but I'm not satisfied. I hunger, and we find fruit and eat, and my stomach is no longer hungry, but I still am. I get tired, and we lie down on cool grass in evening, and I close my eyes, but I cannot sleep because the longing is upon me, and it is strongest then. And I know that there is only one thing that can satisfy it. Eve had been craving something undiscovered herself and hoping he would have an answer. She asked, What is the thing you long for? I do not know, but it has to do with your body. My body? What is it you want with my body? I, I, I do not know, but I know I'll know it when I find it. I need to explore you. I need to figure out what goes where. I want to do things to you. I, I want you to do things to me. Eve said, I, I feel I'm being reduced to something. But in her heart, she thought, maybe not instead of, maybe in addition to. Adam said, please, I'm begging you. This your longing. When did it become my problem? Why do I want to get involved? 
I do not know. Maybe you don't. Maybe this is yet another road down which there is no turning back. But I perceive that we are in this thing together, whatever this thing is. And and I can see it's never going to work unless you help me. And Eve saw that Adam was indeed becoming wise, wise enough to beg for what he needed. And she felt a strange indulgence, much of it for him, and smiled and touched his matted hair and said, All right, I'll accommodate you. You may explore my body and figure out what goes where. And you can do things to me, and I'll do things to you. But it must be at my time and on my terms, and you must promise not to hurt me. Adam reached up and took the hand that stroked his hair and tried to draw Eve towards him, but she pulled back, saying, Not here, not yet. First we have to find a pool and bathe, but this time I'll wash you, and you can wash me. Adam's fingers had got interlaced with Eve's, and they rose together to go looking for a pool. Adam pulled her along, eyes darting, Eve stopping now and then to pluck a flower, yet allowing herself to be drawn along. Adam thought they should split up, quicker to find a pool, but Eve said no. This looking was a thing that they should do together, and Adam knew he didn't have the presence of mind to win an argument. As they walk, Eve talked about what just happened. And they knew it was a new thing. And this thing needed a name. They decided to call it love, which in their beginning language meant the state of being in a thing together. Jack McCarthy. We'll miss you, Jack. Uh, but it's Mr. Chris Gusta. Everybody welcome him to the stage. As tradition follows, I will read you Ryan Johnson's poem from this issue called Redrinking to the Future. There is something I want to tell you. Feel free to keep the book I lent. I got it for cheap and, in my thoughts, thought it was a bit about me. Finger through the words. Finish it. I'm certain we will not see each other again, and I know that no one mails anymore. There is something I want to tell you. I am getting you an axe for your birthday in March. Use it for protection. Use it for creation. Remember when I grabbed the tip of your finger with two of mine, all drunk and high? Finish the book and carry the axe with you always. Ryan Johnson. Um, I am not sure what I was looking for in those interiors. Last night I searched for someone to cook breakfast for, but she went home in the morning without so much as coffee. It is true that I do not understand the wearing of a skirt when it is cold, but even less, shorts. I am awakening to an understanding of not understanding. Talk without knowing, touch without feeling. Did you say you were coming to visit at Christmas time? Things must be looking up. 
I had a message from Jennifer Aniston in my inbox this morning offering me naked pictures of Selma Hayek. I didn't even know they were friends. When I'm done with my class on alien languages, we should have coffee, catch up on those things we talked about, but never got beyond the movement of lips with. Thanks. I have one more. Every time I got fired from my job, the secretary told me she never liked me and then licked my neck. My eyes can hardly go any lower. I am not looking at your chest. I am making a paper clip chain to hang myself with in the storage room. I threw your space heater down the stairwell because it kept shorting out the fuse for my computer. On Thursdays, I do not want to get a beer with you people. Can you hear the way the phlegm makes a gurgling in my throat? If I could find the proper receptacle for spleen, I would return my keys there at once. Thanks. Chris Goose to everybody. All right, up next we have Keith. Taking turns for the worse. They agreed she was no thief, but surely she had taken turns for the worse. Inside tunnels of doubt, then for the better, outside through a winter forest. Every turn attacked her equilibrium. She packed her suitcase with unproved memories. She fought off children with a hoe. Salesmen and burglars with a rake. Hallways of ominous doors refused openings to her ailment. Stray stories visited her. Stayed as pets for company, licked kindness from her fingers. The neighbors kept a key to feed her actual cat. And the same kind of format for taking up residence. They agreed he was no thief, but surely he had taken up residence in a Saxon form farmhouse of mind, on a hill fostering illusions overlooking meager fields. Like a crow visiting a baleful place, he swaggered and hopped over carrion, then flew to a safe distance and watched. She watched, too, but from within a skirmish, dodging projectile, projectiles from armed peasants. Chuckling, he chronicled the action. With papers so dear, she offered no alternative version of events. Thank you. That was Keith. Thanks, Keith. Who's next? It's Robert Houston. Um, so that's like that's like this really heavy thing that's really there, and we're all really sad about Jack. 
um, I wanted to read a poem about uh, by him, which has various different forms. Um, wherever he reads this poem, he changes it. But this particular poem, no matter how much he changes it, always mentions our poetry reading. Uh, and when he, he uh, sub when we got it for our anthology, uh, he retitled it from the top ten reasons I take notes at poetry readings to the top ten reasons I take notes at poetry night. Number eleven. When you're listening to twenty poets in a row, it's hard to give them all the quality attention you're going to want from them. Writing names and titles punctuate the flow like a series of locks on an English river. Ten. To remind myself that the next three minutes might be worth remembering for the rest of my life. My note is a pen to fix that butterfly in my memory. 9. Ideas for new poems of my own. I don't have to write the first poem on a given subject or the best, just one that's mine. 8. A great line. I write it down to consider it later, figure out why I liked it, try for more of that in my own work, or maybe someday... When I'm a thousand miles away, I'll just steal it. Seven. Sometimes I mishear a phrase, and I think it would be fun to combine what I thought I heard with what was actually said. Or someone misreads their own words in an interesting way, like the guy who read Miranda before correcting it to meander. And I thought, write that down. And someday in a poem of mine, you'll see the phrase, meandering Miranda warning. Six. If the cops ask me where I was on March 22nd, I can say, Bellingham, watching Karen Finneyfrock. She was awesome. She did haiku. She did Butterfly House. She got an encore. The only thing she didn't do was the orgasm poem. I wonder why. And Sarah Gooden, this was a first. Usually she sings beautifully, but that night she did an absolutely wonderful poem. And the bad cop will tell me not to leave town but his heart won't be in it. Five. But suppose I'm doing three to five in a place of stand-up guys while my lawyer is appealing that meandering Miranda warning and I can't get to poetry readings anymore. I'll have my wife bake my note cards into a cake and I'll lick the chocolate lovingly, reliving these evenings when I was free as my verse, and I'll put faces to the names and almost hear the voices, people who came out at night to gather in odd-shaped rooms and share a little maybe of themselves, maybe of the persons they would like to be, and it will be just swell, especially the double chocolate cake. Or maybe the day will come when the fabric of the state has been by lies stretched so thin that it cannot support the weight even of one poet telling the truth in public, and they outlaw gatherings like this. Or maybe they don't just outlaw gatherings, just speaking at gatherings. And we come and sit in silence to commemorate all that has been lost. And I'll pass around my note cards, and you'll all read them, and here and there think, I remember that, or I wish I knew what that was all about. I'm glad I'm old. And the future doesn't look too good. Three. And the day will come when I can't get out to poetry anymore. Maybe we won't be able to afford a car or gas. Maybe it will be the nursing home my daughter started threatening me with when she was eight. I hope it's not my eyes. But maybe I'd get someone to read my cards to me and they'd ask, What was Spencer Janik like? And I'd describe Spencer 
the high school kid who slammed every month, often with poems complaining of his virginity. Hey, I haven't heard any of those for a while. What's up with that? And for a minute, in my blindness and my vagueness, it would be as if Spencer was in the room with us, and I'd think, I wish I were a virgin ahead. The whole length of my admittable, legendary, checkered sexual experiences stretching out in front of me. Two, you don't always get a chance that night to tell someone how much you like their stuff. Then, when you see them three weeks later, you can't remember what it was you liked. And it defeats the purpose to say, You there! I really admired that unmemorable poem you did a few weeks ago, whatever your name is. One. There's a poet named Marita O'Neill from Portland, Maine, who talks about when a dog barks, sometimes all they're saying is, I'm a dog. I'm here. My note cards are proof. My way of saying, I'm Jack. I'm here. I'm listening. Woof, woof, woof. Jack McCart. Yep, Jack McCarthy and Robert Houston, everybody. Mr. Matthew Doak, everybody. This is a really old song. Stay here tonight Beside the firelight Stay here tonight I see black and white Your world is colored and beautiful So stay here tonight But in the end it's all the same Oh, games that we play Aren't they? Aren't they? Stay here tonight Beside this firelight Stay here tonight Stay here tonight Won't you teach me what's wrong and what's right And it's all the same old games that we play, aren't they? Aren't they? Thank you. All right, Matthew Doak, everybody. Ooh, it looks like we have a musical interlude.
Well, that was certainly something we haven't had here before, I don't think. So thanks, Still. That was good. All right. Last poet for the evening. Spike, everybody. What up? Man, so uh, I can't think of a better invocation than something like that on a night like this. So I'm going to read... Uh, uh, one of my favorite poems by Jack McCarthy, because the man was freaking, just was a genius. Um, huge inspiration. And honestly, uh, if you can ever get a chance to get this book, this book is Say Goodnight Grace Notes, a new and corrected poems. And it's freaking brilliant. Uh, just about every poem in here will give you chills. And I'm not trying to exaggerate. It's, it's just a brilliant poem. All of, all of it. It's a brilliant book. Highly recommend it. So this is called The Walk of Life. In 1986, the Boston Red Sox lost the World Series in particularly excruciating fashion, even for the Red Sox. The most memorable play of that series was a ground ball that went through the legs of a Red Sox first baseman named Bill Buckner. The Walk of Life You weren't here that long. Near the end of a career that wasn't quite Hall of Fame, we knew you through the box scores and the car radio. And I remember as that fateful season neared its end, almost hearing tears in the announcer's voice as he de tried to describe the sight of you, careering around second on your two terribly damaged legs, stretching a double into a triple. Gallant was the word he used, and gallant is how I remember you. But we live in a time when Nike erects a billboard inside of the Olympic athletes. You don't win silver, you lose gold. And so it is that some remember only the nightmare tenth inning of Game 6, the big bouncing grounder that found a way between those gallant legs, condemning you to the underworld of those who made it to within a whisker of the top, who beat all the competition except one. The inmost circle of that underworld's reserved for the Fred Merkels and Roy Regalses, Denny Galehouses, and Mike Dukakis's, for those second-place finishers designed to be remembered particularly for their hamartia, that's a Greek word, that one error in judgment, the base untouched, the photo op in the tank. Oh, Billy Buck, why did it have to happen to you? I once saw a music video that began with a long string of clips of athletes looking foolish. Stone-fingered tight end juggles ball five times before linebacker demolishes him and ball drops harmless out of bounds. Runner trips over second base as though surprised that it was there. Tall Caucasian butcher slam dunk comes away bleeding. Then suddenly it changes. Wide receiver soars in the end zone, gets one hand on the ball, but it sticks, and he cradles it to his belly, surrendering his body to the furious crash of the cornerback as he just Burned in a moment of such violent airborne beauty, such conspicuous gallantry, that you thank God videotape exists, and you pray that long after you've destroyed ourselves, aliens will land and find this tape, and wonder at the mad grace of such a race, and the soundtrack sings, you do the walk, you do the walk of life. 
I was surrounded by children when I saw that video, my daughters and their cousins, and like someone suddenly filled with the Spirit, I stood up and began to preach the brilliance of what we were watching, that if you want to achieve anything spectacular in life, you have to risk humiliation. And this one time, they all listened to me, fascinated like pigeons in a CC, and I can still see you, standing stiff and tall, the ball bouncing towards you, big and slow, and I know you're thinking, thank God, at least we're out of the inning. But then it's a little too slow. And the batter is terracing down the line towards you faster than anyone named Mookie has a right to move. So you reach deep into the gallant center of your soul. And you will the ball to get there a little quicker. Because now it has to. And there's one tired instant in there when you believe that you can do this. That you can will the ball there. It's believing in yourself too much. I guess what bothers me most is our dishonesty. We know this happens to a thousand people, one way or another, every hour of every day, but we can't live with that knowledge. So we joke. We say, like Bill Buckner, <laughs> fostering the pretense we're too good for this to happen to us, when what is spectacularly obvious is we're not even close to being good enough ever to be exposed to anything this bad. Our errors go unnoticed. Because we go unnoticed, and we like it that way. If we were honest, your name would be spoken only after the lights were out, and then only between two persons who had achieved the deepest intimacy, who knew that they could turn to one another in the darkness when the fear was on them. One of them might gently brush the shoulder of the other, and the other one might swim up from the depths of sleep and whisper, What is it, my darling? And the other one might sigh, Bill Buckler, Bill Buckner. And the other might caress the one and whisper, Shh, it's all right. Sleep will come when you're not looking. Morning will come and breakfast. And things that should be easy will be easy once more. It's the walk of life. You've walked it before. And you will walk it again. Shh. Spike Daily, everybody. And that's it. Again, 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 again,